Signal President Meredith Whitaker comes on to talk about the popular messaging app and what's real or not in the world of AI. All that and more coming up right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. We're joined today by Meredith Whitaker. She's the president of the Signal App and the chief advisor to the AI Now Institute. Meredith, welcome to the show. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You bet. So um, we're going to cover a lot of ground today, but I thought it would be a missed opportunity to start without asking you briefly about Google. You spent 13 years there. What's your just like high level view of the state of Google today? You know, look, I'm not at Google anymore. I hear the rumors, but I mean, history teaches us empires die, right? You know, you the the winners don't stay winning always. And I think, you know, I think you know, management at Google has always been a bit fuzzy. There's always been, you know, the cloud business has you know consistently struggled to catch up to Amazon and Microsoft. You know, none of this is new news. I think you know for a very long time Google was sort of figured as just the default leader in AI. Um, a lot of the sort of early techniques around parallel processing were being kind of innovated in labs at Google, and you know what you have now is um, you know I don't even know if it's a struggle to innovate, right? Because I I think we need to back up and look at like what happened with ChatGPT. Because ChatGPT itself is not an innovation, right? It's an advertisement that was a very, very expensive advertisement that was placed by Microsoft to, you know, advertise the capacities of, you know, generative AI and to advertise their Azure GPT APIs that they were sort of selling after, you know, effectively absorbing OpenAI as a kind of Microsoft subsidiary. But that, you know, the technology or the sort of, you know, frameworks on which ChatGPT are based, you know, are dated from 2017. So, you know, Microsoft puts up this ad, everyone, you know, gets a little experience of, you know, communicating with something that seems strikingly like a sentient interlocutor. You kind of have a, you know, a supercharged chatbot that everyone can you know, experience and have, you know, have a kind of story about. It's, you know, a, a bit like those kind of, you know, viral, like, upload your face and we'll tell you what kind of person you are, data collection schemes that we saw, you know, across Facebook in the 2010s. Um, and then an entire narrative of kind of innovation and, you know, or a narrative of, like, scientific progress gets built around this sort of chat GPT moment, right? Suddenly generative AI is the new kind of AI, suddenly claims about sentience and about, you know, you know the super intelligence and about, you know, AI being on the cusp of, you know, breaking into full consciousness and perhaps endangering human life. All of this almost like religious, um, religious rhetoric kind of builds up in response to chat GPT. So yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a champion of Google, but I think we need to be very careful about, you know, how are we defining innovation and how are we defining progress in AI? Because, you know, what I'm seeing is kind of a reflexive narrative building around and, you know, what is a very impressive ad for a large generative language model, but not anything that kind of, you know, not anything we should understand as constitutively innovative, right? Right. And so, okay, well... 
I definitely have some questions about that for you. And we're going to get into it for sure. Um, but just to focus a little bit more on this line, I mean, they are adding generative search to the top of search pages right now in a labs feature, but obviously that's something that they're thinking about rolling out more broadly. And it's not that they didn't have this innovation, if you want to call it that, or they put this product in-house. They did. Uh, it was, I mean, we're both aware, right, called Lambda. We just had the first product manager on Lambda, and they decided not to ship it, which did lead to, you know, even if it's not a, a big technological breakthrough that's going to kill us all, it led to, uh, you know, giving Google a chance to like really, I'm sorry, giving Microsoft a chance to really outflank it, to cause a scramble. People called it a red alert within Google. I mean, that was the words they were using. And they didn't release it, from my understanding, because of, of safety concerns. Yeah. Um, so, so do you, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of curious what you think about that. Like, was that the right move? Where does it leave them if that's where they're going to be? Well, I mean, right as measured by what? As measured by, you know, the demands of shareholder capitalism that require constant growth forever and ever and ever unstopping. As I said recently at a Washington Post event, you know, the definition of metastasis, like as measured by the requirement that, you know, the shareholder driven corporation sort of metastatically continue growing their market share, their user base, their revenue. Yeah, maybe that is a problem. But I don't know that we should, you know, we should be measuring the the benefits of certain decisions based on that metric, right? So what I'm right. saying is, like, I think we need to reevaluate how we're measuring progress, how we're measuring innovation, and recognize that it's a problem when a massive surveillance corporation like Google overrides an entire, you know, you know, ethics team, you know, in order to push to release something because they feel that there is a competitor who is releasing something dangerous ahead of them. And, you know, thus there is no no value in safety anymore because the real metric, the real objective function is revenue and growth and shareholder returns. But from the framework that you laid out, right, I mean, so dry, describing growth as metastasizing something, I mean, what what should a company like Google do? Like, should they just kind of curl up and fold their cards and become that declining empire? I mean... From your well, perspective, what's the what is the right path for that type of company? I think again, the issue is that the the actual objective function, the actual goals that this company must prioritize above all others are revenue and growth. And so my critique here, if we're gonna be real, is of you know, this form of capitalism. Of the system. So then pra right. pragmatically, like if you were running Google, would it would you just opt out of the system or well, like, I wouldn't be running Google because they don't put people like me in charge. Yeah, of but no, we're going to go hypothetical here. Though. Yeah, hypothetical. Well, yeah, they give speculate. me Google. I think we, you know, like mm -hmm. how do those resources need to be redistributed? What uh -huh. does sort of technology in the public interest actually look like? What forms of technology are constitutively not in the public interest? How do we look at something that is, you know, a bit closer to a, you know, democratic governance of the role of these resources in, you know, human life. You know, I think all of those questions are questions I would want to raise. And I think those are, you know, this, these questions obviously have to be answered beyond Google, right? And so this is, you know, this is the role of, you know, popular movements like the Writers Guild of America and others who are, you know, I think doing the best job of regulating AI of anyone out there right now. Um, this is the role of, you know, some forms of state intervention, um, you know, depending on, on what those look like. 
And I think this is the role of, you know, kind of, you know, theorists who are capable of reimagining what role, if any, computational technology has across different, you know, aspects of our lives, our institutions, our economy. But tech growth, I mean, so this is a big topic of, of debate right now, the role of tech growth. Now, I, I won't deny the fact that there's been some bad outputs from it, but I mean, there seems like there's also, it, it seems like on the balance, it's been good. I mean, curious what your perspective is when we're talking through, I'm using a Chrome browser to, to speak with you right now. Like, um, obviously Google has put like so much information at people's fingertips, um, it seems like it empowers people, I don't know, maybe as much or um, more than it would take away from folks. What, but you have a different opinion. Well, I mean, I guess get down, like, what do you mean by tech growth? Do you mean the commercialization of network computation that happened in the mid to late no, 90s? No, I, I mean that the the various products that these tech companies have built. Um, yeah, so the know, commercialization so of network computation. Okay. Which sure. is, I mean, which is kind of the like, you know, you took these sort of research networks, these, you know, military communications networks, you know, that sort of developed through the you know mid-century. And in the early 90s, the Clinton-Gore administration sort of put all, or, you know, there was Bush involved in this in the sort of late 80s. But, you know, there was put all the kind of economic eggs in the basket of, you know, the Internet will be a balm to an ailing economy where that has seen neoliberal policies, you know, slash manufacturing that has seen the Democratic Party sort of, you know, move away from seeing its base as, you know, labor and workers to seeing its base as, you know, high tech and, you know, uh, workers more or less. This is a very, you know, kind of quick summary of a much more complex era, of course. Um, and then really pushed for neoliberal policies and neoliberal policies. That's not like a fancy word. That just means like an ideology that sees the private sector as, you know, ideally responsible for everything. Right. So, you know, privatize, privatize, privatize as few regulations, as few you know interventions from the state as possible is that, you know, ideological framework, you know, sees neoliberal policies kind of applied to this commercialization. And you know, I would say Matthew Crane's work, you know, particularly the book, you know, Privacy or Profit Over Privacy is a really good, you know, historical analysis of this time, which sees, you know, this this sort of, you know, discussion throughout the 90s, this policymaking process where the technology and advertising agency um, industries are leaning very heavily on the Clinton administration to ensure that, you know, the there are as few regulations as possible. So it's industry led. It is open for innovation and to ensure that there are there is a you know explicit endorsement of advertising as the you know business model of commercialization. And this is, you know, this is borne out. You see the the framework that was sort of published, I think it's 1997, although it went through many drafts, you know, explicitly endorses advertising as the business model of, you know, the commercial internet. And of course, advertising requires surveillance, right? The more you know about your market, the more you can sort of target them, the more you can sort of make good on the, you know, promises of mar- market segmentation and, and targeting. So this is, you know, this is the framework that then births these products that, you know, seem really innovative and cool. Like, yes, they have, you know, reshaped our relationship to information. But, you know, this this sort of surveillance advertising business model also gutted local media. It also gutted our news and information ecosystem. There is very few business models now for independent news and, you know, local news, which in itself has sort of, you know, redounded to, 
you know, let's say a decrease in the strength of you know democratic processes and institutions at the local level in the U.S. We have you know a crisis of gerrymandering where it's very difficult to right. claim that sort of elections. But was are, it surveillance or was it just aggregation of audience? What, what's the difference? I mean, surveillance is getting all the data. Like that. I mean, yeah, get gathering all this data on top of people and you know, aggregation of audiences, like, look, like advertisers want to buy big audiences. That's why they love TV. And you can buy big audiences on Facebook and Google, as opposed to a local newspaper. So if you have, if you're like an ad buyer, you can go to, let's say, you know, a Google or a Facebook and get hit all your objectives, as opposed to having to go to a disjointed group of like 500 local newspapers to do the same thing. Well, I think those two went hand in hand, right? The sort of, you know, because it didn't start as, you know, one platform to rule them all, right? You know, you had kind of, you know, search and other things, but, you know, this business model was developing throughout the 90s. And it isn't just a mass audience, right? We don't all see the same ads. We are segmented into, you know, micro targets that are, you know, like, you know, I am, you know, a woman of a certain age, you know, based in the New York area. And, you know, I go to yoga frequently and that's why you saw this ad, right? So, you know, that, you know, there is an imperative for data collection, which, you know, again, audience, data collection on audiences and market segmentation was not new to the internet, but the, you know, surveillance capabilities of network computation and the ability to sort of, you know, link databases that existed before this commercialization with, you know, the imperative for ad- advertisement and, you know, the the ability to, you know, quickly, you know, through cookies, which was another thing, like, right, you know, collect a the, bunch of data on people, yeah. you know, overlaid those two things. Many right? of the local newspapers used this same technology. They just didn't have big enough audiences. So I I'm, I guess I'm losing your argument, though. What's the argument here? Uh, specifically on your point about the local news ecosystem, it's more complicated than simply saying that it oh, was yeah, surveillance yeah. that put them out of business. Um, but I guess I was building on your argument that, like, mm-hmm. wasn't it a net benefit, right? Okay, and so I'm we saying we would have to, to go into the weeds and actually yeah. analyze, like, what were the collateral consequences, right. beneficial to whom, and recognize, like, mm-hmm. we are in a crisis in terms of our e- information ecosystem, our media ecosystem, our ability to sort of access a shared reality to access like credible empirical information about our world. And that is in part because of the dynamics of this business model, which is self-reinforcing, right? Which does, you know, once you have a sort of winner in this business model, it is very difficult for another competitor to break in. And that, you know, that speaks to your point around, you know, what I would call like platform dominance, right? There's one Facebook instead of, you know, a million heterogeneous little local news, you know, news outlets, which, themselves can take different positions, can report on different things, can sort of provide a much richer information ecology than, you know, one Facebook that decides a certain type, you know, pivot to video. Now don't pivot to video. Right. Um, and makes that, you know, determination in ways that um, are profoundly undemocratic. I mean, definitely a rough transition for a lot of news sources to this new world. But it was also a product of like a lot of terrible business decisions as well from newspapers and magazines not accustomed to having to adapt and, and innovate. And yeah, I think I that mean, there are some but examples But this is why now. we have, yeah. you know, like, do we want our media to be driven by the same sort of, you know, business imperatives, right? If, if a very valuable source of news and investigative reporting is not able to turn a profit, does that make it less valuable? 
No, no, definitely not. But I don't think right. they should. This is a thing. I don't think they should have to go through the same processes as like a Google. Like you can build a successful local news brand and you don't have to follow the same, you know, uh, targeting criteria yeah, no. that Google did. You can build, you can do it. They just had these legacy, legacy costs, legacy structures, and they couldn't, they couldn't adapt fast enough to like figure out a way to do business on the internet. And ultimately like they were in the internet. So that was sort of what was happening. I mean, I think, you don't agree, you know, okay. like <laughs> I, it's something around 70 percent of, mm-hmm. you know, ad buys from media go to Facebook or right. sorry, Meta. Right. Yeah. Like that's not, you know, I, I don't think we can say like there was a way to pivot. But the old guys with their gray beards and their cups of coffee and their teletype machines just didn't figure it out. Right. I think there was a predatory business model that, you know, effectively took the rug out from under these actors, you know, you know, who were themselves sort of, you know, advertising funded, not sort of funded by, you know, as in the UK and many other places, kind of like, you know, state media funding arms, right? So there was a choice way back when that media and news should be advertising funded, which itself was a, you know, was a thing. Um, But, you know, and then, you know, the continuation of that model into commercial network computation, the sort of internet business model, you know, displaced the, um, and we didn't replace that. We didn't fill that in. We didn't sort of, you know, um, effectively take measures to preserve our information ecosystem from that transformation. Yeah. I will agree with you that it's not in a good place right now. And our society is definitely lost because of the, the fact that we don't have as good local reporting as we did previously. It's just enabled much more corruption and, allowed behavior to go unchecked. So you, you also said that um, you found that generative AI is not actually that useful. And mm-hmm. I think maybe that's right in the consumer sense, like ChatGPT, you know, it, it had declining usage across the summer. People have talked about how this could actually be very helpful in the enterprise sense. For instance, if you're a lawyer using a chatbot to query like 500 different documents to find relevant information for your case might be interesting. Or, you know, in, in various other enterprise circumstances, you have a bunch of PDFs, you just got to be able to talk with them, you know, have the bot read the data and then be able to pull out insightful information, you know, could be helpful as well. So, I mean, talking about ChatGPT as, as an ad for Microsoft services, you know, potentially, but there also were some actual interesting and, and I would say innovative uses that you're seeing right now with the technology. What do you think about that? Um, I mean, I didn't say useless, right? I said Mm -hmm. not that useful in most serious contexts, or that's, you know, that's what I think. Um, And I think it's, you know, what I'm not saying is that like, oh, it can do, you know, if it's a low stakes sort of lit review, a scan of these docs could point you in the right direction. It also might not. It also might miss certain things because, you know, you're looking for certain terms, but actually there's an entire field of the literature that uses different terms. And, you know, actually, if you want to research this and understand it, you should do the reading, you know, not maybe trust a proxy, um, you know, that is only as good as the data it's trained on and the data it's trained on is the Internet plus whatever fine tuning data you're using. Right. So I don't you know, I'm not saying it's useless. I'm saying it is vastly overhyped and sort of the claims that are being made around it are you know i think leading to a sort of regulatory and you know kind of um a regulatory environment that is a bit disconnected from reality and to 
you know, a kind of popular understanding of these technologies that are far over, over you know, over credulous about the capabilities, right? You know, I like, like, again, it's not, you know, any, any serious context where factuality matters is not somewhere where you can trust one of these systems. You What's know? your perspective on open AI? I feel like we're going to find common ground here. Um, I mean, I think OpenAI is like a really annoying name because every time you talk about like, you know, like it's sort of, you know, but it's not open um, um, insofar as there is such a thing as, you know, quote unquote open AI, not the company, which um, I write about with some co-authors elsewhere. And it's, you know, not a clear term. And uh, I think, you know, we need to be careful about that assertion. But, you know, I think OpenAI is very good at marketing. Um, I think, you know, they are now effectively a part of Microsoft, which is, you know, points directly to the fact that, you know, these bigger are better paradigm for, you know, quote unquote AI is in fact, you know, kind of centering and privileging, you know, a handful of actors who are the ones who have the infrastructure, the data, the talent, the market reach to be able to actually you know, create and deploy these systems at scale. So, you know, the fact that Anthropic is sort of, you know, tethered to Google and now Amazon, the fact that OpenAI, you know, couldn't stay, you know, independent because it became clear they needed the, you know, compute resources of one of these giants. And it's a lot easier to get those when you sort of, you know, absorb yourself into one of those giants benefiting from their economies of scale than it is to sort of license those outside. It's very, very, very expensive. Um, so I think, you know, OpenAI becoming effectively part of Microsoft is an object lesson in, you know, just how concentrated the, you know, just how few actors are actually able to create these systems and just how concentrated the power in the AI industry actually is. Where do you, where do you think this, this all goes? I mean, if, if you're so skeptical of, of, this wave of generative AI and you think it's a big wave of hype, do you think it just fizzles in a similar way that Web3 did? Or do you think that it's actually going to lead somewhere? Um, I think it's being hyped, right? So hyped does not mean it's useless. It does okay. not mean it's... It seems much know, more useful to me than the Web3 stuff for that, you know, for what Yeah, well, I mean, look, Web3 was built on techniques for doing cryptographically, you know, assured append-only logging, which is hyper-useful, right? Certificate transparency very, very useful. There are, you know, many approaches to using those techniques to do something that is useful. But Web3 was sort of built on, you know, a lot of hype about, you know, effectively unregistered securities, a mad rush to sort of fill in the bottom of an ever expanding until it collapsed Ponzi scheme. And, you know, the like kind of hype around like NFTs and other, you know, um, effectively like applications of those technologies that were, you know, not very useful to many people, right? And you have, you know, like DAOs and smart contracts, etc. But those were not like, you know, again, it was a, you know, it was a hype. And what was the motivation for that hype? In my view, it was, you know, a lot of big players in the tech industry were heavily invested at the top of that Ponzi scheme, and were hoping for people to sort of fill in the bottom until FTX collapsed. And then, you know, kind of the whole thing, um, fell behind it. So I, you know, like what, again, what I'm doing there is distinguishing from like what the hype was predicated on, what the interests of the hype were, the narrative of the hype, 
and actually the technological affordances that underlie the hype, which themselves are not useless, right? But the claims made about them were deeply dishonest and misleading. All right. Meredith Whitaker is here with us. She's the president of the Signal App, chief advisor to the AI Now Institute. On the other side of this break, we're going to talk about the app itself, Signal. Back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Meredith Whitaker, the president of the Signal app. Let's talk about the Signal app. I mean, what is the state of the Signal app right now? How many users does it have? How, how do you feel about you know its um, the way that it stacks up against the other messaging app? Uh, is it in a state of positive momentum now? What's um, going on with that app? Certainly in a state of positive momentum. It is the world's most widely used, truly private messaging app. We have many, many millions of users. We don't give a round number, but you can cheat a bit if you want and look at the App Store and see that it's been downloaded over 100 million times just in, sorry, the Play Store. The App Store doesn't give those numbers. Um, The other one, um, the Play Store, see that it's been downloaded over 100 million times. Um, And I, you know, I'm just, I'm really happy about the state of the app, about the state of the organization and about, you know, many of the things we have you know, moving forward, including, you know, the the launch of usernames, which we're, we're aiming for early 2024 there. Um, and anyone who is interested in more on that um, can become one of the, the you know, signal, signal code watchers who, you know, can see the development of usernames happening in real time in our repos. How big is the team building the app? We're a little under 50 people now. Wow. So bigger so. than we've ever been and also incredibly small. And is uh, the app for. funded by donations or do people pay to use it? Um, it's funded by donations. Um, so we had a, you know, a large, uh, a large tranche of money from Brian Acton, um, which what's has helped give us the what's up co-founder. Yeah. Um, give us a runway um, as we build up a donor supported model. We're looking to as much as possible subsist on small donations um, because we think that is the safest way to you know, generate revenue. We don't want you know a handful of large donors who can you know have every right to change their mind at, at some point about their patronage. Um, we don't want to be reliant there. So we are you know you will see in the app if you go to settings there's a little donate button. We encourage you to click it. And you will see periodically, you know, kind of a small message appear that, you know, asks if you're able to donate a little bit to Signal and you get a badge, which is this little, you know, it's like a little icon that appears near your profile photo. 
um, is very cute if you uh, donate through the app. So yeah, we are we're looking at the donation model, but you know, let's be real, it it is very expensive to run technology like Signal, and I think that part of the equation is often missing because, of course, like you know, consumer technology is often or almost always experienced as free, right? And you know, that is because we are you know, surveilled and subject to advertisements and, you know, data breach and privacy violations and change of terms of service to sort of, you know, target us with AI, all all of those social ills come along with that. Um, and, you know, just because Signal has a different model of, you know, collecting as little as possible, being incredibly staunch about privacy, doesn't mean it's less expensive for us to, you know, develop and maintain the app. So we have a, a piece coming out um, kind of talking a bit more about the cost of Signal. And you know, one of the estimates we give is that by 2025, we anticipate that it will cost around $50 million a year to develop and care for Signal. Um, and that's lean compared to, you know, a Meta or a Google or, a, you know, other large uh, consumer tech company. Yeah. And the reason why I ask about resources is because it does seem to me like it's going to require more resources to compete with these other apps because, for a while, messaging apps seemed fairly static, right? They were a place to message your friends. But now they're starting to be a place where, I'll use the word, so much innovation is happening, right? Like you see um, broadcast channels, for instance, is something that started to come to places like Telegram and WhatsApp, where basically people can disseminate information to people who subscribe to them, which is interesting. And you're starting to see AI AI bots, right? Now, right now, Meta has 28 bots that it's testing a messenger and WhatsApp, you have things like stories. I know signals put in like stickers and stuff like that. So, I mean, of course, like the privacy message is something that's going to appeal to some, but to actually compete shoulder to shoulder, I'd imagine that you have to put in some of these bells and whistles. So how do you think about that when it comes to prioritizing what to build and just like the pace of, of change that happens inside these apps? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a great question. And one of the first answers is that we're lucky to not have to compete on their terms. We're not doing engagement hacking. We're not trying to show a board that we're, you know, collecting more data or, you know, keeping people glued to the app for more hours a day so that they can see advertisements or, you know, be part of our ecosystem where, say, we join their metadata with other personal information we have or et cetera. You know, we are aiming to continually grow the number of people who are using Signal, but that's because Signal is not useful if none of your friends use it. So we need that network effect of encryption so that, you know, when people really need Signal, when, you know, privacy is valuable and privacy is always valuable, you know, post hoc or otherwise, um, you know, that people have it installed and can reach the people that they care about. So we're not, you know, one of the reasons we are a nonprofit and see our nonprofit status as, you know, not a nice to have, but actually essential to ensure that we're focused on privacy is because we will not be pushed by profit minded board members to, you know, collect a little data to, you know, prioritize revenue over privacy, you know, in an industry where the business model is undermining privacy. So we do, you know, we do think about that landscape, but we are, you know, first and foremost, we're thinking about privacy, right? And we are not a social media app. So we're not adding things like channels, like media broadcast functioning. We see that as distinct from the service we provide, which is a, you know, we are an interpersonal communications app. And we do see a lot of people, you know, reaching out to us, people who talk to me when I'm, you know, out and about in the world, 
who are very grateful that they don't have to sort of, you know, open a truly bloated app where, you know, millions of features have been added, making it look kind of like Microsoft Word because, you know, we are incentivized to constantly add new things to try to grow to, you know, meet our OKRs, to meet our company goals as like, you know, AI becomes trendy or what have you, we can actually stay lean and focused. So I don't I don't actually see that as a competitive disadvantage. Um, I see these apps as becoming, you know, oftentimes bloated and, you know, kind of a infrastructural single points of failures that people are grateful to not have to rely on for everything in their lives. I mean, one of the reasons why they've become bloated, I imagine, is because I'm curious what your take is on this. It's because the social network has moved to messaging apps in, in many ways, like actually all the action that was happening on like a Facebook newsfeed is now happening in like a WhatsApp or a messenger where people, instead of sharing with everybody, share with a group chat. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on that. Do you, are you finding that also like in, in a app like Signal, sort of these messaging groups replace the old school social network that sort of the social web emerged with? Well, I think, you know, we are not a social network and we're not a broadcast of course, we're, we're not, we don't provide broadcast functionalities. Um, we also have a cap on our group size. So, you know, we don't we're not looking to enable the kind of mass virality that a social network enables or to, you know, in any way replicate the functionality of, you know, social networking, whereby I can you know sign up and then you have a directory of users effectively, you know, kind of attached to that and you can sort of post of course, to strangers of course. and but have the that energy post. though the energy has gone from the social network to the group chat it's just morphed effectively into a new format which is happening in your app well i don't i mean i actually one we don't collect data on okay. our users if we can help it so we don't have the kind of analytics and telemetry data that you know a surveillance app would have and i'm not sure you know i'm I need to sit with it, but I'm not sure I agree that the social networking energy has moved, right? You know, you still see people using, you know, all kinds of Instagram, TikTok, Snap, uh, you know, even Twitter, you know, or X, nay, Twitter, um, you know, all of these still have user bases. And then people have their group chats with their friends, with their family, with, you know, whatever their church group. Um, and I don't think, you know, I don't think those things are the same. Um, and I think, you know, again, you know, there's there is a collapse in some of these apps like, you know, Telegram or, you know, most recently WhatsApp kind of adding channels and adding social media functionality. But I don't I'm, I'm not sure I'm aligned that like the energy of social media has moved to group chats because I think they are doing kind of discrete, discrete things. Um, OK. Yeah. But What's I do, your, you know. Yeah. Go on. What's your perspective on Telegram and how do you compete with them? I mean, you mentioned them. They are this kind of fascinating app that seems to be picking up a lot of steam. I mean, has yeah. been for years, but they're kind of mysterious to me still. Yeah, they're mysterious to a lot of people. There's a lot of, um, it's hard to find a like well-cited claim about Telegram. But what we do know is that, you know, Telegram talks a big game about privacy, about sort of defending human rights. They have a very mythologized origin story with their, you know, founder breaking with the Russian government, which adds a kind of, you know, dissident flair to the whole endeavor. But, you know, they are not encrypted. They are not a private app. They provide, you know, encryption as an opt-in feature for one-to-one -one chats only. 
And my concern with Telegram is that that rhetoric and some of the bombast around human rights and privacy serves to give the impression that the app is much more safe and secure than it is, driving people to use Telegram in situations where it's actually not very safe. We know that Telegram, you know, even though they talk a big game, they cooperate with governments when they're forced to, or you know, maybe when they're not forced to. I don't know, um, and you know, have have very bad data collection and security practices. So I would, you know, Telegram may have a lot of features that people like. You know, I'm not going to judge that, but I would say in terms of privacy, I would stay as far away from Telegram as possible because it simply can't be considered a, a private app. If they are Russian dissidents, which kind of governments do you think they're closest to? Because I have no idea. I mean, okay. I have I have no it like really I don't know much about them and I distrust what I have seen because oftentimes it's sort of circular citations, right? It goes back to, you know, a comment made by the founder or, you know, something similar that can't really be verified. So I, I really want to stay away from judging or offering any speculation there. I just don't know. And I think that's probably the position of most people right now because it's not a very transparent organization. Yeah, they, they definitely, I mean, I've been covering this space for quite some time and trying to get to the bottom of what the deal with Telegram is has been one of the yeah. toughest stories to crack. Well, if you do, let me know because <laughs> I don't know. All right, Meredith. So yeah. great to have you. Thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Great to be here, Alex. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And love the app. I'm a big signal guy for all, oh, yeah. all my friends. They know that well. So me too. All yeah, right. I always sounds say great. Text me on signal. Okay. Sounds great. Right. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. 